Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. everyone welcome to the tennis.com podcast i'm your host nina pantic joined by irena falcone irena how you doing good how are you all right so this episode we are going to have ken skupski on he is a top doubles player he's a little bit older he's 37 he tells us all about his experiences playing doubles being a doubles specialist he also went to lsu but before i introduce him let's talk about what What's going on in WTA world right now? Because kind of nothing. Last week we had Ostrava, and after that there's one tournament in Linz, and that's it. So, Irina, what have you been hearing? To be honest, not a whole lot. Uh, there's been a lot of players that have decided to just end their season, go on vacation. I was talking to one player that's in the Maldives, which, as we've spoken before in this podcast, is like the number one destination for tennis players. I was talking to Madison Keys and I asked her, I was like, oh, when you're traveling again? And she told me it was December 14th that she would be traveling again. And that is because for Australian Open this year and to enter Australia, you're going to have to do a two-week quarantine. And uh, it's very interesting for some players because, I mean, it's like you come back pretty much. Some players just played two tournaments on the comeback from the pandemic. And so you really aren't getting that much momentum and you don't want to start your preseason too early. And so... There's just a lot of what ifs right now. That's what I'm hearing a lot of. Um, there are some challengers in the States. Uh, I believe Macon is happening. Um, and there's maybe another tournament in Texas, but there's whole there's not a whole lot to do. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what players do as a preseason or where they go to vacation next. It's hard because you also can't really vacation freely. You're not really supposed to be traveling for fun. So as a player, you might not want to share as much. We have seen some footage of players and footage as in like Instagram posts of them going home, which used to be a bad thing sitting at home for six months. But players have been gone for almost two months at this point. So it makes sense. I also noticed that Daria Gavrilova, one of our former podcast guests, just survived that two-week quarantine in Australia, spent the full two weeks in the hotel and could only open the door to get food that was being delivered to her door by a security officer. And she and another player, Ellen Perez, had a joining room, so at least she didn't completely lose her mind. But two weeks in a hotel is not an appealing way to get ready for a Grand Slam. So I've heard Craig Tiley, he's a guy, obviously the big man in charge of the Australian Open, he has said that they're trying to figure out a way that that Melbourne and Victoria, the state, obviously allows players to go to a tennis court and at least the gym or else they're not going to come. It wouldn't make any sense. Right. Can you imagine, Arena, your preparation being two weeks in a hotel room? I can't imagine that. And you're leading up for pretty much the start of your season, the first slam of the year. And actually, you're not going to practice for two weeks. It's not easy. Um, so I'm sure that they're going to be able to come up with something to have a safe environment for players to practice, to use the gym. Uh, but honestly, I mean, this is just the year where you just have to roll with the punches. And if you don't get two weeks of training in the gym and the tennis court, 
you'll be there with everyone else on the same boat, you know? I don't think so. I'm I'm different than you. I don't think this is going to happen because I don't think it's going to be fair. Australian players like Daria are already there. They're going to be there for months in their own home. Her especially, That's she's true. from Melbourne, and they're going to have a different advantage. I don't see this tournament happening if the two-week thing is at all in existence. And things have been changing pretty quickly, especially in the U.S. in terms of, like, protocols. But Australia has been pretty firm on this. Like, they are very serious. I respect it completely, but I don't see this tournament happening a lot of tournaments are already being canceled. Like, you know, the tournament that we know, the one in um, Midland. Wow, how did I forget mm-hmm. that? They just announced they're moving from February to November. And February, I mean, a few months ago, February seemed like it was going to be in the clear. And now I'm like, no, February is also in a very bad spot. This November? Like next month? No, like moving to like 2021 November. Oh, okay. With, with plans say. to play wow. it in February of 2022, which I love that. Let's just go back to back. Wow. Yeah. Oh, oh, the indoor court, like the indoor hardcore players are going to love that. It makes yeah, sense. It'll be you. interesting. It'll be very interesting. You bring up a good point. And uh, yeah, my my biggest thing is, though, if you're going to Australia for two weeks, let's say you have to do that. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of players just decide to skip that slam as well. Exactly. I mean, why, why even go if you know that you're not going to be prepared, you're not going to be ready, kind of just have to toss it to the side. That's kind of been the 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 theme. And financially, I'm trying to think of players that are outside of the top, let's say 50, let's be generous, top 50. You have to go and fund yourself for like four months in Australia, you know, two months in Australia. That's double than what you're used to, which already costs so much to go there. And I know that I'm not sure if this applies to tennis players going for the Australian Open, but all of my friends that are trying to go home to Australia have to pay the, you know, the $3,000 flight plus three grand for the hotel. That's six grand just to show up. Some players can't really swing that, especially after six months off. So I did not know that you actually had to pay for your hotel because I know U.S. Open was wonderful in being able to provide hotel for players during the U.S. Open. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of players just decide to just kick that one to the curb. I don't know if, yeah, they're going to pay for it, but I'm not sure yet. But I know for normal people, for the regular humans, they've been, they, they've been, they've been paying and it's not great. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you also have to take into the account, like, one of the things that they've been doing in the past couple of years that they've been making Australian Open like the swing a little later in the year. So you're able to spend Christmas and New Year's with the family. How many players do you think are actually going to be like, all right, I'm just going to spend my uh, Christmas and my New Year. Like not that New Year's is a big thing, but Christmas is pretty important. And especially to this spend year. it in a hotel room. That's tough. Especially this year, I think people are a little bit more attached to being with their families during such a, I mean, a global crisis is not an easy thing to be like, buy families to you guys in two Correct. months for something that yep. might still not even happen. It's crazy. I all ha- But I haven't noticed that many players retiring as a result of this. I don't know, maybe they're waiting to see how things play out. I'm not saying that our guest, Ken, is planning on retiring, but he is 37. He has three kids, three little boys. He'll explain in the episode. And you kind of see him thinking about what he's going to do next. He also talks a lot about his younger brother, Neil, who has teamed up with Jamie Murray, pretty much abandoning his brother in the final stretch of his career. (laughs) But they're both cool with it. And you'll hear him talk about his brother, which I think is really nice because you... You see, he kind of like led him onto the tour, led him to college, to LSU, kind of boosted him and helped him in his career. And that, I don't know, I know the Bryan brothers, everyone talks about a lot. They did retire, but to see brothers on tour is fun. To hear him talk about his brother is really, really sweet. And he also talks about how he's thinking about what's next, which makes sense at at that age. So, Honestly, yeah. I, with, with tennis, the way sports are, you have to constantly be thinking about that. Not that you have to constantly be thinking about retiring, but you just never know 
with an injury, with anything that can come up, global pandemic, you just have to have your doors open and you have to make sure that you have opportunities there that you can kind of jump at. On that note, let's jump into my interview with Ken Skupski. I talked with him at World Team Tennis. So yes, it was a while ago, but we talk about things that are not about World Team Tennis. So hold on, hold on, everybody. And he talks about his brother, Neil, a lot. So get ready for that. Here's Ken. All right, Ken Skupski, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How did you guys get into tennis? Was it you first and then he followed you because you're about six years maybe older than Yeah, I'm an old man now. Um, yeah, now where, where our house is in Liverpool, my parents sort of run one of the tennis clubs there and open our back garden. Um, just beyond that is the tennis club. So it was, a, it was an easy thing for us to sort of learn to ride our bike on the tennis court, you know, socialize at the tennis club. And uh, my dad loves tennis and uh, we just went out there at a young age. I mean, I think I started three or four years old and had a you know had a decent talent and worked hard and um yeah it, it came about you know doing well in junior tennis that Neil obviously started to play as well and he he went down a slightly different route to me in the sense that my dad thought I played too much um so Neil didn't go all over the country playing tournaments all the time I, I would probably say I'd play 25 tournaments a year and he'd play five um but fortunately he you know he, he was a talented player young up-and-coming kid with you know, lots of talent, but never really sort of did anything on the junior scale. Um, but I went to LSU, so I, I told the coach that I think you've got a good player here. Nobody else is recruiting him because nobody knows him. Um, but take a chance on him, and, and they did, and, you know, he became All-American, and I think he got to number two in the nation. So he's, he's he was a bit of a you know, bit of a dark horse in college tennis. I mean, good thing he had you around to, to vouch for him. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's done well having me around. Um yeah, I mean, a lot of people say, I mean, I, I've taken chances on him because I know how good he can be and how good he has become. Um, I don't know whether that's just being biased, but I, I, I did see a lot of talent and, and capability in how he could play at a young age, leading into sort of the professional game. And I, I think it was a it was a massive gamble for myself to take him on. I think he was ranked like six or 700 in doubles, um, and I was top 100. Uh, I just split from one of my partners, and I was sort of at a bit of a loose end on what to do because... I wasn't playing ATPs. It was more of a challenger level. And I thought the sooner I could get Neil, his ranking up, the more chance we'd get to play together. As as you're saying, I'm, I'm six years older. So this was, you know, back in 2013. And the quicker we could get him up there, the more chance we'd have of playing a longer time together. And, and fortunately, we, we managed to sort of hit the ground running. We knew each other obviously fairly well. Um, even though people people think as brothers, we, we know each other inside and out, but we I went to college, then he went to college, so we were apart for a good 10 years. But we, we knew enough about each other and how we needed to do, so I mentored him, and, and we got him into the top 100 within a year. So it was a, it was a gamble that paid off. Um, and then he just went ahead and, you know, went ahead of me and threw me by the wayside. No, I mean, I mean he's joking, he didn't really. Um, it was, it was a, he kind of did. Yeah, kind of did. No, he, he, he knew I was, I, I was in a position where I was all, you know, getting older and things were getting a little bit more difficult with family. Um, so it was a family decision when obviously Jamie came in the options to play doubles with him and it was it was a it was a worry for me at first but it ended up being okay I mean I've done okay since um, but it was it's it's never the same without playing with your brother.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Ken Skupski. He's telling us all about playing tennis on tour with his brother, Neil. Keep listening. Yeah, so for those who don't know, Neil got picked up by Jamie Murray, and that's an offer you don't really refuse, but I think you're doing okay. When did you guys realize you were going to try and chase pro? Like, Were you personally always going to go to college, or did you consider going pro when you were younger, when you were a teenager? I think I was, my parents always were pretty good about the academic side, obviously making sure you got, you know, got some stability in life. Um, in the the way the LTA was working, I, I was still in school and a lot of players were turning pro at 16 and, and going to like academies and stuff run by the LTA. And I just didn't feel I was good enough to do it at that such a young age. And I, I'm a family man. I don't particularly enjoy being away from home for long periods of time. So I did everything based at home and I, I felt like we, we made good decisions on coaching and stuff like that. Um, and it, you always have the idea that you want to turn professional, but you don't really know until, you know, you, you've got some elite tennis players that are at a young age. They know that's the, that's where they're going to go. I was, you know, fourth or fifth best player in the country. I think I just had an idea that college tennis was the best place for me. Um, I'd spoken to enough people who turned professional young and then retired at 22 because they were burnt out, losing lots of tennis matches. And I, I just didn't feel like I was ready for that. And I love the team environment, so going to college was another, you know, great idea to sort of be in that team team scenario. And I, I felt I flourished in college. I, I did great at LSU, and the idea of playing 80 matches a year was great. And, you know, having success in college gave me the belief that I could go on and do something in the professional game. You know, looking back at previous players, at what their rankings were and where they were going. Um, so yeah, I was, that was the idea. And I think sort of halfway through college, I knew I'd, I'd got a decent chance to turn and pro how far you could go. You just don't know. You just got to get out there. Were you considering going pro in singles as well? Is that something that you were trying to do or was doubles a natural? Doubles was definitely more natural just from the sense that as a, you know, as, as a kid growing up, club tennis was always doubles at home. Um, I was also the fat boy when I was young. It was it was it was a it was a it was a tough thing for me moving around a tennis court. Um, yeah, I've I've never been you know the, the the fittest guy in the world, and and that sort of showed on the court the way I moved. And and I also think I moved poorly in t- in the sense technically poorly, uh, which didn't help until sort of mid twenties when I started to dine. I mean, the way tennis was played when I was younger was everything was off the front foot. Nowadays, everybody's you know hitting big shots out wide and, and, and I was never sort of taught how to do that properly. And I, I and it, it showed on the tennis court the way I played because I was very aggressive, but when I was whenever I was under pressure, I could never sort of, you know, transfer my weight through the ball and it just never worked for me. I had a good college career, don't get me wrong, I, I beat some good players. Um, but I, I knew I, I I turned pro probably to to try both, but I knew doubles was the way forward. I think after maybe twelve months I got to like five hundred singles and 140 in dubs. So I, I sort of had an idea where this was going. How did you pick a partner though when you first finish LSU and you're thinking to yourself, I want to go play some futures? How do you even begin to choose a partner? Because sometimes doubles, at least from what I've seen, is considered the second. Everyone goes for singles and doubles is just there available. How do you turn pro in doubles? Yeah, it, it's a tough one. I mean, 
you generally you generally play singles to start with always because the futures level if you're a good player you've got a chance of doing okay at futures level it's once you get to the sort of the challenger level where things start to get real tough that's the that's the feeling that i felt um so i had a good college career i felt like i was winning matches at futures level things were going okay but my singles and my doubles ranking was going further and further apart and at that point it was more apparent that it was time to sort of focus on doubles um and that's when you start to sort of recognize the rankings where you're at and who you're sort of potentially able to play with very rarely do you get a guy top 100 playing with a guy 300 you're always sort of round about the same just because it means you get into the same tournaments um and at the time my first you know full-time doubles partner was colin fleming who, who was a great player and we we hit the ground running when we started playing i think we won our first 16 matches together um so it was uh, four tournaments in the row to end, I think it was 2008, I would say. Um, and then we had a, you know, a fairly successful 2009. We beat the Bryans, first tour event match or first tour event event. Um, won two tour events um, and broke inside, I think we were broke inside the top 50 sort of within the first 12 months together. So that, you know, that was pretty lucky to sort of have someone who was sort of, you know, very similar dedication to doubles as I was. Um, Unfortunately, it didn't work out over the course of the next two or three years, and, and we went our separate ways. But finding a partner, you know, once you're up there and you're established, you will get offers, and you, you, you're sort of trying to find someone who sort of has similar skill set to you or someone you sort of get along with off the court. You know, if, even though you can play great on the court, if you don't get along with them, it's, it's not easy. So you see that quite a lot, that guys sort of go their own ways because they don't socialize together and they, they find things more difficult on a personal level. Um, but some people are, you know, all business. You know, if they if they do well on the court, then they'll stick together. I feel like you'd be per- pretty easy to get along with overall. Yeah, generally, I, th- I think I'm a pretty laid back type of guy. But yeah, not you know, different diff- people from different parts of the world. You know, that they have different sort of outlooks on how things go. Um, I'm I'm not. I mean, I can be quite stressy on the court at times. I'm I'm, I'm desperate to win all the time, so. It was easier to sort of play with my brother towards the end because we were sort of playing as a team. At the start, I was quite stressed because I felt the burden of the of the, the stress of the team because I was the older brother. I was trying to teach him how to sort of, you know, do things day to day. And I felt like I was doing a good enough job. But when it came to sort of the crunch, it was it was difficult. Um, I felt a little bit too much pressure at times. Um, and then, you know, as he matured, he, he understood how things were going for me. We, you know, we were open about things. We were probably it's great playing with your brother because you can be more open and, and, and not let things sort of, you know, unravel on the court or off the court. It was, it was quite easy to sort of get over the issues that we were having. And that's, that's, that's the benefit of playing with a brother. Um, sometimes if you don't play with a brother, you, you, you tend to keep things inside and you let things spiral out of control quite quickly. Um, and you, you probably should split at times and you tend to just sort of go with it. Well, yeah, I mean, overall partners, you know, they come and go and, and some work that you don't expect, but a lot of the time you'll you'll find someone that you really click with. Is there any stigma with being a double specialist on tour? Is there any bad connotations to go with it? You know, obviously it's more fun to watch. Recreation, recreational players relate more to it. As you said, you played more doubles. I prefer doubles as well. So was there any yeah, I mean, difference? It, it is a funny one because, I mean, a lot of tournaments that you go to, especially in America, I, I think more of the English-speaking countries, um, doubles is played on a more local level. You know, it's, it's more of a club sport, and people like to sort of interact with the doubles guys because they, they, you know, give a bit of feedback. They say, oh, well, you know, what a great shot this was. The, the way the game is played, it's interactive in, in the sense that 
there's so much sort of banter between the players a little bit more. Um, and that's fun. That's great. But there is obviously the fact that singles is where everything's at. That's, you know, the, the moneymaker for, for the sport. And, and that's fine. I, I sort of know my place in, in world tennis. And, and that's, that's fine. You know, there's, there's really, you know, difficult moments in the sport at the moment, obviously, with what's going on. But we have to accept it. It's, it's part of what, you know, it's, it, what's going on in, in the world is bigger than tennis at the moment. And unfortunately, sometimes doubles might have to get cut in a certain way. And that's not great. It's not good for our sport. But everything's run as a business as well. You know, even though it's an entertainment, it's, it's also run as a business. So singles obviously will get priority in that sense. But, you know, I'm pretty chilled out about life. I mean, as, as I am a bit older, it's, you know, having kids, you sort of, you know, see bigger things than just, you know, just tennis. You have three three boys. Three boys, yeah. Seven, seven four, and one. It's, yeah, it's a tough one. It's, it's, it's been great, to be fair, obviously, having this period off to be home for a considerable length of time. Um, but my life has changed having children because my schedule has to change just because I need to, you know, compromise with my wife to sort of be home a little bit more. And it's, uh, it, it's a big burden on her to sort of have to deal with them when I'm away a lot. And it's three on one is, is difficult. But We've, we signed up for it. This is this is what's going to happen. And, and tennis doesn't last forever, fortunately, for her. it's uh, I'm coming to the latter part of my career, so it won't last too much longer, I wouldn't have thought. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, but special guest, Ken Skupski. He's telling us what life on tour is like when you have three little boys at home. Keep listening. There's quite a few guys from the UK here, and I've noticed that all of them seem to be like absolute double superstars. What's up with the Brits being so good at doubles? You mentioned a few there. I mean, all, all these guys here, and even on tour, there's more names that are just dominating. What's the deal? I don't know, really. I mean, we, we've obviously got a good sort of philosophy how things work back in the UK with um, the LTA have you know, invested quite a lot in doubles with Louis Kaye. He's, um, he's a good coach that sort of brings us all together, and, and we all sort of play by the same, you know, playbook um and that's the thing is it, it, we could all play with different players from the uk or um, and and sort of fit in quite well together um i could play with jamie neil could play with johnny o'mara you know joe salisbury could play with bambridge you know we can all we can all mix and match and we could all play well um which we have done in the past and it's it's nice to be able to play with you know traditional doubles players guys that generally all serve volley and play the game but it, it's changing you know, there's a lot more people playing from the baseline these days and the, the playbook is getting bigger because there's more, you know, sort of players to sort of come up against that all play a different style of play. So um, overall, we've generally been, you know, we've, we've had a lot of success in doubles um, and long may it continue. But Louis Kaye is a Canadian who moved over to the LTA. You would have probably started working with him in your mid-20s. How does that influence so much? Is it because he has like five points he tells you and all of a sudden you're top 100? Like what... What's happening, and how often do you even see him and like work together? Yeah, it's it's a bit sporadic more now. Um, he's he's his his role in the LTA I think has changed over the years. Um, 
he still does, you know, most of the big tournaments. Um, but he's part of coach. He's more part of the coach ed for the for the LTA now. Um, but when I first came out of college, I, I knew all about him. I, I knew sort of his his history. Um, I'd, I'd read his book about his sort of philosophy on how doubles is played, and it's you know it's a little bit more you know by the numbers. And it was interesting to see he was quite famous for his ropes. Um, he'd you know he'd, he'd study the game in terms of you know angles and and it it's not until you actually put ropes down on the court that you actually realize sort of areas of the court that you don't need to cover you think you have to cover everything but you don't and that was um that was something that was very sort of mind-blowing when you actually get out there and you do it and you know you do it day in day out you work on the sort of the, the most basic things you know serve and return and first volleying um and you can you can study the game off the court as well you don't have to be on the court and and he sort of gave us an idea with, you know, video technology these days of what's good, what's bad and, and how to do things. And, and we all bought into it. And as once you buy into something and you buy into a philosophy and you all stick to it, you've got a better chance of doing well. If you just make things up as you go along, it's, it's a lot more difficult. It's working. What, uh, what, what do you hope is next? I mean, you've mentioned a few times here, you're, you're getting older, you're 37. That's not exceptionally old, but sure. And you're not sure how much longer you're going to play. Do you have a plan for what you want to do next besides obviously be at home? Um, I definitely want to stay in the game. I love the, I love the sport. Um, I mean, whatever that brings, I don't know if there's, if there's a job offer out there maybe. Um, but no, it's while I'm playing, I'm, I mean, I'm still doing well. I mean, with COVID, the way things are happening, I mean, I'm going to keep my ranking at where it is for quite a while. So um, I will continue to play tennis while I'm making money and, and enjoying it. Um, and that's, you know, as we go down the line with the way things are going, it's, it's hard to sort of tell when that might, might you know, might change. Um, but there's no obvious signs of where I'm going to go with it yet. Um, but I definitely want to stay in the game. And that's, that's you know, that's key for me. And I'd love to work with some, you know, up-and-coming players. And I, I feel like I, I could do a good enough job, but I, I've got to learn my trade. You know, it's, you can't just guarantee that a good player becomes a great coach. So I'll learn my trade and, and see where things take me. Perfect. All right. Thank you for your time on that. No, uh, Ken, it's been great. Thanks for having me. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.